Good evening and welcome to episode 39 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. I am your host, Terrence M. Stanton. Thank you so much for joining us. Today is day 33, the glorious mysteries in thanksgiving for our 54-day rosary novena, and our intention is as follows. For the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary by the Pope and all the Catholic bishops of the world, in the manner requested by Our Lady of Fatima, which will end these chastisements, prevent greater chastisements, and result in the conversion of Russia to the Catholic faith and a period of world peace. I unite this rosary with all the rosaries offered for the same intention. I would like to continue to take a look today at Crucial Truths to Save Your Soul by the late great Father Nicholas Gruner. This is from Chapter 3. Lessons from church history, even popes, councils, and bishops can err. The preceding chapters have made it clear that the failure to preserve belief in Catholic dogma predicted in this third secret of Fatima and taking place before our eyes today must involve a failure of much of the upper hierarchy, bishops, cardinals, and to a certain extent even the popes themselves. But how is it possible for the church's leadership to err in this way? Did our Lord not promise that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church? Yes, he certainly did. But that promise does not preclude errors on the part of the church's leadership that harm the church even if her official teaching remains intact. While the gates of hell will not prevail against the church in the sense that the church would ever formally defect from the truth and officially teach error, which is impossible, this does not mean that individual churchmen, even the vast majority of them, as during the time of the Arian heresy, can never fail in their defense of the faith. They can and they have. For 40 days after his resurrection, our Lord conversed with the apostles, appearing to them and speaking of the kingdom of God. At last, with his final commission to them, just before his ascension and with the descent of the Holy Ghost upon them nine days later, they received such an abundant infusion of grace that for the rest of their lives, they would be able to avoid ever committing a mortal sin and to avoid even ever committing a fully deliberate venial sin. Each of the apostles was also given the extraordinary prerogative of personal infallibility in matters of faith and morals. Whenever they taught and imposed a doctrine as an obligatory teaching of the faith, these privileges were personal graces given to each of the apostles. The bishops of the Catholic Church are the true successors of the apostles, but they as a whole have not inherited the personal guarantees of holiness and infallibility that were given to the apostles. Only the Bishop of Rome, who is St. Peter's successor as Pope, retains the charism of infallibility, preserving him from error, and this charism is engaged only when he is defining a dogma of faith or morals. At all other times, the Pope bears the same liability to human weakness and error as do all the other bishops of the world. And that's an important point to make. We don't believe the Pope is impeccable, incapable of uh, making an error. We believe he's infallible in errors of, in matters of faith and morals when he's speaking for the universal church. The history of the church has fully borne this truth out. Truly, as all Catholics should know, the Pope can make mistakes, such as personal sins, through imprudence and weakness. The Pope can be wrong about what policies will best enable the church to serve our Lord, and yes, the Pope can also be mistaken in his beliefs and even in his public teaching, even about faith and morals, when his infallibility is not engaged. 
to err is human. Every human being is prone to making mistakes in judgment. We look for the best course to take in particular situations, but in spite of our best efforts, we sometimes get it wrong or succumb to external pressures. This is true even of a pope. Let's look at five examples in the history of the church in which a pope has had the misfortune of seriously blundering. In each of these cases, the consequent harm to the church could have been even greater if there had not been clearer thinking, courageous subordinates on hand who understood their duty to resist the Pope's error. Number one, St. Peter. Our first and greatest Pope once acted in such a way that he gave the impression to many who observed him that a condemned error was the Church's true doctrine. He himself understood and believed the true doctrine, of course, and he was acting with the best intentions, trying to maintain peace in the Church, But nevertheless, he was causing people to waver in their belief in a defined dogma of faith. Here's what happened. In the very earliest days of the church, the Jewish converts continued to observe some of the customs that had been prescribed by the Mosaic Law, to bury the synagogue with honor, as it were, as Bishop Richard Challoner says. At the same time, there was a significant number of Pharisees among the Jewish converts to Christianity, some of whom were insisting that the Gentile converts must also adopt these practices, that the Jews had always been required to observe, namely circumcision and certain dietary laws. The question quickly produced a bitter controversy in the infant church. That the church was open to the Gentiles, no less than to the Jews, had very early been made clear in a vision to St. Peter. But were such Gentiles converted now to the church to live as Jews? The Jewish element in the church continued to practice all the observances of the Mosaic piety. Must the Gentile convert do as much? Did he come to Christ through Judaism or directly? The question was a practical one. It involved such things as circumcision, an elaborate code of dietary regulations, a whole way of life. But it did not end there. The controversy was, at bottom, a controversy as to the relation of the church to the old religion of the Jews. The discussion between the two types of Christian was a discussion as to whether a Christian could be saved through the church alone, whether the church was self-sufficient or, though a better kind of Judaism, still no more than a Jewish sect, and, as such, tied to the law. The apostles and other bishops of the church gathered to decide the question. We read in the Acts of the Apostles how Peter himself settled the matter at the church's first council, the Council of Jerusalem in 49 AD. There arose some of the sect of the Pharisees that believed, saying, they must be circumcised and be commanded to observe the law of Moses. And coming down from Judea, they taught the brethren that except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. And the apostles and ancients assembled to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rising up said to them, Men, brethren, you know that God who knoweth the hearts put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt you, God, to put a yoke upon the necks of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Then it pleased the apostles and ancients to send to Antioch, writing by their hands, for as much as we have heard that some going out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, to whom we gave no commandment. It hath seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay no further burden upon you than these necessary things, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication from which things keeping yourselves you shall do well, which when they had read they rejoiced for the consolation, 
and Paul and Barnabas continued at Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others the word of the Lord. So the Council of Jerusalem had taught infallibly that the Catholic faithful were not bound by the Mosaic ceremonial law, including the prohibition against eating with the uncircumcised. But the circumcision party, as St. Paul calls them, didn't just go away. In spite of the council's definition, these Judaizers, the false brethren to whom St. Paul refers to his letters to the Corinthians and to the Galatians, naturally still had very strong sensitivities against the foods and practices which they had always viewed as defiling. Even if the old practices were no longer legally required, it seemed to the Judaizers that the observance of the Mosaic customs were the mark of a more perfect Christian. In their eyes, the Gentile converts were merely second-class members of the church. Soon after the council, Peter made a visit to the Christian community at Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas resided, and at first he made no scruple about eating with the uncircumcised Gentile converts. As Pope, he had divined their liberty as Christians to remain uncircumcised, and he knew that they were in no sense unclean. But then it happened that some of these Judaizers also came to Antioch from Jerusalem, where the apostle St. James the Less was the bishop. Peter knew that he had no obligation to eat with the Gentile, Gentile converts, <clears throat> Excuse me, and he knew that his doing so would offend the Judaizers. It must have seemed to Peter that the best course would be to make allowances for the sensitivities of the former Pharisees and to avoid a needless confrontation with them. So as soon as these former Pharisees arrived, Peter changed his habit and began to eat only with other former Jews. Of course, this was noticed by everyone, and the unspoken message, though not intended, was the Gentile converts are low-class Christians. They can't be sure of their salvation unless they are circumcised and observe the old ceremonial laws. Thus, what Peter's example really amounted to was a dissimulation, giving a false impression in favor of the error which he had already formally condemned. By shunning the Gentile converts, St. Peter was leading many Christians at Antioch toward a heretical belief, as if the infallible teaching of the Council of Jerusalem had been wrong. So powerful was his example, in fact, that a great many of the Jewish converts were led into the same shameful practice of refusing to eat with the Gentile converts. St. Paul tells us that even St. Barnabas, who had been set aside with St. Paul at the command of the Holy Ghost to preach to the Gentiles, and who himself had worked miracles demonstrating the election of the Gentiles and the abrogation of the old law, had lost his sense of the Church's true doctrine. St. Peter did not personally embrace this error, and he didn't realize that his condescension to the Judaizers was giving a heretical impression to the faithful, but that was the fact nevertheless. Finally, St. Paul corrected St. Peter in public before all those people who had been misled by Peter's bad example. St. Paul stood alone and said basically, your holiness, you're wrong, and you can't do this. But when Cephas was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that, some came from James. He did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them who were of the circumcision. And to his dissimulation, the rest of the Jews consented, so that Barnabas also was led by them into that dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly, unto the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as the Jews do, how dost thou compel the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? This, by the way, was a marvelous example of true loyalty to St. Peter and to the papacy. All those who had gone along with Peter in respectful silence, or whatever you want to call it, had not done any service either to him or to the church, to say the least. 
their cooperation had served only to obscure the true faith and to jeopardize the salvation of many souls. To St. Peter's credit, he quickly realized his error. And he humbly acknowledged the truth of St. Paul's correction. Excuse me. Sadly, this whole incident remains a stumbling block for many non-Catholics to this day who deny the authority of the Pope and who misunderstand St. Paul's resistance. I remember how, even as a seminarian, I was asking myself why God had allowed St. Peter to make such a mistake and why he had perpetuated the scandal by inspiring St. Paul to include an account of the event in his letter to the Galatians. At first glance, this passage seems to make it difficult to defend the Catholic teaching about papal supremacy and authority. I realize now that God allowed this incident to happen for our instruction. It's an important lesson for every generation of the faithful from that day until the end of time. We need to have clear ideas about the purpose and limits of the Pope's authority and to understand that the papacy is not meant to be the basis of a personality cult. The church's hierarchy does not operate by means of slavish and unreflective submission to one's superiors. Blind obedience can never justify us in disregarding a, a defined dogma of the faith. And you can read the additional examples. There are a total of five of them that Father lists in Chapter 3 of his book, Crucial Truths to Save Your Soul, which is available for free at Fatima.org. Um, that's very important. The cult of personality that has kind of grown up along the Pope, uh, along with the Pope, in the television era. You know, they call John Paul II the, the rock star Pope because he was Pope for so long and he traveled so far and wide and it seemed like he was on TV all the time. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. There's nothing wrong with using modern means of evangelization, but something that Cardinal Newman had warned about in the wake of Vatican I, and of course he would affirm what the church defined there on papal infallibility, but he was concerned that now that this was out there, that the faithful would do exactly what many of the faithful do nowadays, seeing the Pope as impeccable, seeing every utterance coming from the Holy Father as being, you know, has to be believed with divine and Catholic faith. Uh, the Holy Father could never, um, respectfully, of course, and charitably um, be criticized for something he might say that's incorrect. You know, every interview that the Pope gives is not infallible. Sadly, I think that's what a lot of Catholics now believe, and that is chalked up to a crisis in catechesis, apologetics, and evangelization, and we need to do better. Thank you so much for listening to episode 39 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. I would like to close by saying an Ave Maria in honor of Our Lady of Fatima and a prayer in honor of St. Joseph. I would ask you to please share this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, at Fatima Podcast. Let's pray the rosary every day. Let's tell people how much we love our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's tell people how much we love Our Lady of Fatima. Let's tell people 
how much we love St. Joseph, the terror of demons. It's still the year of St. Joseph. The Holy Family is going to guide us through this, my friends. We need to have holy families to have a holy culture. And we need look no further than the Holy Family at Nazareth for what the ideal family is supposed to be. A home of great love, a home of great joy, and a home of great obedience and perfect humility. So let's conclude. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in mortis nostrae. Amen. Prayer of St. Alphonsus Liguri for a happy death. St. Joseph, by that assistance which Jesus and Mary gave you at death, I beg you to protect me in a special way at the hour of my death, so that dying assisted by you in the company of Jesus and Mary, I may go to thank you in heaven and in your company sing God's praises for all eternity. Amen. Virgo potens, ora pro nobis, Sancti Joseph, Teradimonem, ora pro nobis, in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Thanks again for listening. Goodbye, and God love you.